You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Toonstar, an animation tech startup that produces snackable, interactive content for mobile audiences. To learn more, visit Toonstar.com or download the Toonstar app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Chris Stokel-Walker, a journalist who covers the online video space for publications like the BBC, Wired, The Economist, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, and more. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello. That, that, when you said that, that makes it sound like I write for everybody, and it's not quite <laughs> that. I thought we'd start by talking a bit by how you got your start in journalism and what attracted you to covering the digital media space. So my start in journalism is a kind of an odd one because I was working in uh, an office in Newcastle in the UK, which probably your listeners won't know about. It's the last major city in England before you get to Scotland. If you travel like due north from London, you get to Newcastle. So I was working in an office doing just kind of reports and stuff like that. And I'd always been interested in journalism. But uh, my boss at the time, she read one of my reports and said, "Uh, you write like you should write for The Economist. So I kind of took that as a challenge um, and started pitching The Economist. Uh, their editors said no. One of them actually got back to me nicely and said no. So I then pestered them until they said yes. And that was about 10 emails afterwards, 10 different story ideas. And it's kind of gone from there. So um, I am lower than 30. I'm not quite 30 yet. Uh, so I kind of grew up in this digital media space, particularly YouTube and things like that. And realized that there were very few people covering it, um, at least in any sort of sensible way, I think. And so I kind of spotted maybe four or five years ago that this was something that was going to be big and started covering it um, and managed to travel the world thanks to it now. So yeah, I went to a, a YouTube school in Madrid, Spain, which was an absolutely bizarre experience a couple of years back and wrote about that for Wired. Um, I'm writing about T-series at the minute because obviously that is a thing at the minute uh, in YouTube. And yeah, just anything to do with digital culture. I kind of figured that it's something that needs to be respected in journalism. And to date, it's not with the exception of you know people like Taylor Lorenz and Julia Alexander, people like that. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that I started the podcast is I found that so much of the online video space was oral history that was being lost, right? And I wanted to share that with more people, share some stories from entrepreneurs. And I always love having journalists on the podcast, especially those that are kind of immersed in this world, because I find you have a good perspective. And you, you know, especially kind of covering it from an international standpoint with kind of a viewpoint from the UK, you've got some good insight into what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I hate the fact that a lot of our coverage is about you know, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, is so ridiculously reductive. Um, and anything that we can do to try and fix that, I think, is a good thing. So let's talk about some of those things you mentioned, right? You, you uh, alluded to the fact that you're covering T-Series, which has now become the largest YouTube channel in the world, eclipsing PewDiePie, which, you know, some people, I think uh, early fans of the platform were a bit upset or maybe surprised. But of course, I think it was only a matter of time. T-Series is this massive Indian music channel backed by kind of a large media engine. It's got this whole company producing content. And it's not just a single creator or a single entertainer's voice. What is your take on that subject? It's, I guess it's just, it, in microcosm, that is what YouTube 
is becoming in macrocosm is you know a lot of the reporting that i've been doing over i don't know the past nine months and i think is going to continue a lot through 2019 is this idea of the professionalization and the consolidation of youtube so up at the top, the big channels are either you know, merging or acquiring other ones. You, know, you look at things like Smosh, you look at Enchufe.tv, which I broke the news of earlier in the year. Um, you look at Little Baby Bum, which was sold for, I think it's actually probably something like tens of millions of dollars uh, last year, which I, I broke the news of. Yeah, I, I, I reported that for Bloomberg last year and um, had an estimate from an outside source uh, that put it at about, I think it was probably $10 million, about seven and a half million no sorry six million pounds uh and then i went to vidcon london and got told by a uh, a person who would probably have knowledge of that space that that might have been wrong uh by a factor of about five <laughs> so um wow too high be, or yeah, too low too low so we're, we're talking sort of tens of millions apparently um apparently i mean this is the thing it's all sort of second and third hand but yeah so i think that uh t-series is kind of a perfect example of how youtube is becoming a uh, very mature business space and you know various people cover different aspects some people focus on the lifestyle when they cover youtube as journalists other people focus on kind of the the gossip and the drama um i kind of try and do a little bit of both and also look at the business side um and i think that one of my sort of theories this year is that with all the scandals that youtube has the fact that it wants to placate its advertisers it goes to safe harbors so that's why you've got will smith as the face of 2018 rewind um and also in in sort of light of that i think that you get more and more creators trying to look professional and you're going to see more and more businesses getting involved in in this video space i think we're, we're quite actually a mature market which is weird because people like you james i guess will know that this has been a big thing for years but while those inside the industry think oh well this is kind of maturing now and they're, they're moving on to tiktok and things like that uh the, the general media is still thinking that youtube is this cool bright new thing that is kind of ripe for exploitation i, I think the door's kind of bolted on that yeah, you're certainly right. I mean, it's still early innings for online video. And of course, there is a lot more audience coming onto these platforms. There is some fragmentation at the same time that consolidation is happening among top creators or publishers. But we still got a long way to go. And some of these traditional media companies are just starting to embrace YouTube and similar platforms for the chance to market content, reach an audience and monetize their work. Yeah, I mean, what I always have this conversation with, with everybody that kind of knows this space, and I always ask this question, how many generations of YouTube do you think there are, and where do you think we are at the minute? That's interesting. What do you, how do you define a generation of YouTube? Well, this is the thing. So I ask this, and people give me like 15,000 different answers. Um, I was talking to Laura Chernikov um, as part of the book, which I think we're going to get onto in a little bit, um, that I'm, I'm writing, and this was maybe... 18 months ago she's the um she was the executive director of the internet creators guild the kind of creators union um and she actually asked that question because i had asked her that question in an interview and then she asked her twitter followers that and like nobody could decide at that point sort of 18 months ago i think the majority was that there was something like seven generations of youtube but it's kind of like you know i guess v1 youtubers went on to the site to uh, just mess about and think of it as a creative thing then I kind of think 
version two, you kind of get MCNs coming in a little bit into the space. Um, you know, I, I think that we're probably up to like six or seven by by my reckoning. But it's it's kind of you pluck a number out of the air and figure out, you know, you can make an argument for anything. I think, and we, we seem to go in a little bit of a cycle at the minute as well. Like, I think this. I don't know about you. I think this sort of era of, as you say, consolidation in some ways, fragmentation in others, and businesses coming in, it's kind of a, a re-rally of what we had with the MCNs in the very early days of businesses trying to get in on this platform. You know, um, like a, a Disney Maker Studios thing didn't really work out in the long run, and they've kind of big businesses have gone away from the platform a bit chastened and realized oh, we need to be a bit more smart in how we approach this and and they're kind of doing it a bit more sensibly and a bit more sustainably now in a, in a business sense yeah i think you're right i mean it's it certainly uh these platforms are constantly evolving it's hard to stay relevant and that's a challenge for individual creators just as much as it is for large media companies sure and they diversify as well right i mean uh, you know that's that's old news to people but um you know creators having one foot in youtube and one foot on patreon one foot on tiktok you know and in, in the old days snapchat and i guess instagram now like it it's it's interesting quite how the business sense has come about and and how people realize that there is a potentially a long-term career to be made here but you don't want to put all your eggs in in one basket particularly when you've got companies that kind of seem to massively overreact to to negative headlines. So let's talk a bit more about your upcoming book, YouTubers, how YouTube hooked our children, shook up TV, and created a new generation of stars. It's going to be released this May, so just a couple months away. Um, what are some of the key insights from your research that you highlighted in the book? There's all sorts, really. So it's kind of, uh, when I try and describe what it is, I, I kind of say it's, it's an impossible task because it's trying to sum up the history of YouTube uh, where we are at the minute and where we're going to go in the future in 352 pages which is impossible so it kind of it looks at the uh, people who made the platform the people who are kind of making a living off the platform um, the associated businesses around it which I think is a really interesting aspect and uh, also a little bit about the societal impact so some of the insights that I've had kind of they um they look at basically what might be the impact of this weird thing that we've created that has entirely upended the media industry and, as we say, created a new generation of stars and a, a career path for people to go down. Um, and it, it's kind of, in a way, it doesn't have all the answers because it can't. Um, because if I knew where all this stuff was going, then I would be mega rich and and not not doing journalism as a job i fear but uh you know it, i think it's it's the right time for this sort of stuff to be coming out because it seems like you know, youtube as a platform is getting far more attention uh and people are starting to really ask questions about well this has been here for what you know 14 years now coming up um you know what has its effect been on media on society on celebrity and, and on business as well. What's maybe the most surprising thing that you've discovered in drafting the book? Actually, one thing that I found, which um, 
hasn't gone out yet, but it's it's kind of I did exclusive polling for the book, so um, I I asked basically about eighteen hundred I think uh, UK adults to try and uh, recognise some big creators on YouTube and also recognise some celebrities and ask them some questions about that. And one thing that I find really interesting is um, in terms of authenticity, actually what happens is the creators on YouTube are seen as less authentic than certain celebrities. So admittedly, it, you know, some of the names that I used were people like Jennifer Lawrence, who is kind of a very authentic, uh, traditional Hollywood celebrity, but for, you know, she was seen as more authentic than some big creators that you would think would actually be authentic. But that kind of, you know, that comes back to this overarching argument, which is that this industry is becoming professionalized and commoditized. Whole cold hard commerce is kind of getting into it, and so you're no longer necessarily connecting as you were back in 2005, 2006, 2007 with the individual creator behind the camera. You're actually interacting with a brand which i mean you must see that all the time in in your interactions as well certainly and i think these audiences are getting more and more able to assess that right they understand when a creator is being sincere and they they also understand that a lot of these creators need to make a living and that's why you've had things like um you know patreon and these other services pop up sometimes the platforms have rolled out additional monetization features to support creators and in some cases, you know, it works. It, it ties in nicely with what the creator's trying to do and how they engage with their fans. In other cases, you know, it, it turns people off because these young audiences have the best bullshit detector of anyone, right? They know when uh, a creator is sincere and when they're just trying to make a quick buck. So do you think then that the Paul brothers, it works or that they are, they're on the bullshit detector thing then? Well, you know, what's interesting about the Paul brothers and other similar creators of that ilk is that they are... Uh, shock artists, right? They're the reality TV stars of YouTube. They draw attention by being extreme. And a lot of these social platforms are geared towards rewarding that type of behavior because whether you love them or you hate them, they're still getting views. And then that's going to drive conversation. It's driving uh, discovery in the algorithm. They know that their shock value is what generates their appeal. Yeah, I think I think I called in the book Jake Paul the uh, the first postmodern YouTuber because he he's kind of very transparent with the fact that this is all done to try and game the algorithm and to to make a business out of it. But it, yeah, it's it's super interesting. I mean, like I I look at things beyond YouTube. So I did a story for uh, 1843, which is like the Economist's uh, bi-monthly uh, long-form magazine, uh, a couple of months back about. Uh, the risks that people are taking uh, in terms of either violence, so you know, dangerous behaviour, or in terms of you know hanging off the edge of a cliff or a tower to try and get the perfect Instagram photo, and and kind of you know how the algorithm drives that in a bit. In that we have to be more perfect, we have to be more extreme, we have to be more daring in order to do that. But I guess the interesting thing is that you know, YouTube in particular is kind of dialing that back in its its uh, anti-pranks and anti-violent videos uh, sort of denouncement what was it back in january i think when they said that they're gonna start demonetizing that stuff 
Yeah, obviously YouTube has a vested interest in making sure advertisers continue to view the platform as brand safe and will spend money there. And so they've taken a number of steps recently, and many of those tend to be very reactive, right? You've seen you know, what they've done around kids' content and, and recently disabling comments there, agreeing to hire 10,000 more uh, comment moderators to view video content and, and screen it for safety. Sometimes the things that they're doing are a bit more proactive, you know, increasing monetization for premium content and, and moving fill rates or uh, completely demonetizing content that's uh, maybe deemed less appropriate. So they're still trying to find their legs, it seems, and trying to uh, walk that line between serving the audiences, but also making sure that the advertisers can be there to support the ecosystem. I find that incredible, though. This is I've, I've, I've started a newsletter a couple of weeks back, um, partly because I have more thoughts about YouTube and the digital world than I can find outlets who will take stories about it. And um, <clears throat> my latest issue, which went out uh, yesterday, uh, we're kind of recording this in mid-February, uh, was sort of like a primal scream at YouTube actually um just kind of going like ah oh, why have you not in 14 years woken up to the fact that you have a major impact on society um you know I, I get the fact that like you start up a video website in 2005 uh showing sort of like you know a bunch of elephants at a zoo and don't think that you're going to become essentially bigger than tv um but I, at some point you know if if people like you and me and various journalists can realize that every action that youtube does has a, an impact on society and on people then surely you would think that those within the the site themselves would would be a bit more proactive and a bit more more careful in terms of what they do Let's talk a bit more about those big platforms and some of the decisions uh, that they've made recently, right? One of those that comes to mind is you know, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's uh, recent announcement that the company is going to focus more on private messaging and, and small group communications in the future, which I think is not to say that it's going to move away from the broadcast yourself approach that the timeline offers today. But, you know, they've been able to kind of walk the line between public discourse with, say, Instagram and, and the kind of public news feed versus, you know, the stories feature, which is more of a curated private conversation among your followers or your friends. What do you think the future holds for Facebook? Well, I guess there's, there's two things to unpack there, isn't there? There's kind of the rise of stories on every single platform, um, you know, Instagram and, and Facebook and everywhere else. But I I find it concerning as someone who has you know in the last couple of months been on bbc radio to talk about whatsapp and them limiting their sharing limits um the forwarding limits in india because of all the violence that this idea that you kind of increase people's filter bubbles um by making communications even more private and even more within only a select group of people uh, I mean, I, I'm kind of sounding a bit like a am down in the dumps here about the future and I'm a massive tech pessimist. But I, I, I think that there's something to be said for opening up dialogue. Um, and I think that you know, one interesting thing that I've seen in the last week or so is actually probably a better fix. And it's getting a lot of stick because... It's not the best thing that Twitter could be doing with their time. They could be fixing all the harassment problems on their platform. But the removal of the the mooted removal of the, the likes and retweets 
metrics on Twitter to me seems like actually a really good idea because it kind of keeps the conversation open in a way that Facebook seems to be trying away from, but it's also at the same time kind of reducing, as we talked about, that need to be more extreme um, in your viewpoints or or to pick arguments or you know in in the YouTube terminology to to sort of stir up drama. I guess. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's an interesting commentary on you know the the nature of speech via social media, right? So in in some ways, social media has enabled some incredible things. It's brought people together, allowed people to stay in touch. Uh, it's kind of fostered senses of communities among people who might be geographically isolated. It's helped transform certain cultural and political events like the Arab Spring, right? On the other hand, it can be used as a weapon. It can be used for inciting violence, as we've seen in, in certain places and some of the examples that you alluded to. So it's kind of a fine line to walk. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on you know, what is the responsibility that these tech platforms have to oversee and, and uh, manage the level of discourse on the platforms? I am not, and I think that we probably want to talk about this at some point in terms of you know, Elizabeth Warren and uh, what's happening in the UK this week in terms of there seems to be a growing head of steam amongst politicians that uh, that platform should be increasingly interventionist, I guess, and and tone police what happens on their platforms. I'm not uh, I'm not that much of a, a sort of polemicist in saying saying that that should happen, but I I do think that in the instances where there is clearly something happening um and it's obvious to everybody but the platform you know it's obvious to people on the street or the, the users of that platform then really they should do something about it just because otherwise you kind of let things go unchecked and you know the fact that we live in a, a political world where facts are kind of up for debate rather than truth truthful things is is kind of because of this uh lack i guess of oversight in some way of of social media you know the fact that we can have uh alternative facts is really alarming to me as a journalist now i think that you know the social platforms have some responsibility in that not you know not saying that it's all their fault certainly not laying all the blame at them but i do think that they know more than anybody else what is happening on their platforms. And so they should try and be a little bit more proactive than they currently are. Yeah. Those tensions are increasingly coming to a head, right? We live in an era in the first time in which people openly question the veracity of news media, right? And and in some ways, that's a good thing because, you know, people should have a questioning mind when reading any sort of uh, publication. But at the same time, I think the level of trust and faith in government and in journalism is uh, probably much lower than it has ever historically been. You also kind of mentioned the fact that uh, recently the tension between tech companies and government is coming to a head. So you've got Zuckerberg being dragged before Congress to to testify after the data breaches, especially Cambridge Analytica. And now you've got uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's openly criticizing the tech companies and laying out a proposal to weaken them, uh, either through uh, new legislation or undoing some past acquisitions that they've done, for instance, preventing a social media platform like Facebook from acquiring another social platform like Instagram. And you've covered some of the similar developments happening in the UK. You know, recently, Chancellor Philip Hammond has also been attacking some of these tech firms. So what do you make of the situation? What is it looking like across the pond? 
Well, we have a slightly less successful uh, attempt at getting Mark Zuckerberg in front of uh, our kind of equivalent of Congress. We we have a, a select committee which is trying desperately, pleading with Mark Zuckerberg, I think, on a basically daily basis to get him to come and testify because obviously we have in the UK the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, and there's some sort of suggestion that he should be held to answer questions about that. Um, but yeah, in terms of the UK and I think elsewhere you look at places like France where uh, there's a big movement to try and tax tech companies more equitably in comparison to non-tech companies um, you know the, the tax gap in Europe is something like 14 percentage points so the average European com- uh, the average European company pays 23 percent tax uh, across the European Union the, the sort of 28 soon to be 27 uh member states of that kind of federation uh whereas tech companies pay something like nine percent so i I, i've been talking to french politicians for a story that hasn't yet been published about kind of why they're trying to uh haul tech companies over the coals a bit more in terms of more equal tax and then also as you said this the spring statement that we had from Philip Hammond, uh, the UK's Chancellor, where he basically accepted the um, the findings of uh, a thing called the Furman Review, which basically said the same thing that you know the tech companies have too much power; uh, they ought to be broken up a little bit more. Uh, it's kind of very much the same playbook as Elizabeth Warren at the minute. Uh, so, yeah, we live in really interesting times. I think that tech companies have kind of become the enemy, and I can't decide whether or not you might know, James, whether or not. Um, this is because we always have to have a bogeyman in terms of every new interesting thing that comes along we kind of think that it's rotting our brains and the people that run it are evil or whether or not this is something entirely new what's coming next if you had to make three predictions for the future of the media space what would they be Ooh, that's a good one uh okay well easy one is uh the obvious one that everyone has clocked onto which is that tiktok is going to become a big thing in capital letters uh that's not really much of a prediction i guess but uh, you know, they are starting to monetize their platform very slowly. Um, and so I think that you'll see a lot of creators from Instagram, a lot more creators from Instagram and YouTube go there. Um, that's kind of a macro thing um, on YouTube, which is kind of my jam. I think that uh, this year we will see more consolidations, more mergers. If 2018 was the year that creators discussed burnout um, and mental health is a major issue, I think 2019 uh, we will have as the year of creators kind of feeling locked into being people that they no longer are. So if you're a creator that comes to fame at the age of 15 as a massive emo fan who plays starcraft or something like that and five years later you absolutely love Kyle ray jepson songs and bubblegum pop and hate starcraft do you still continue playing starcraft because your x million fans still love starcraft um a, a lot of you know in, in terms of in my sort of day-to-day reporting and a lot of the reporting for the book um i've spoken to a lot of creators who kind of feel trapped in a bit of a a gilded cage really in that they have a very very positive very very big fan base um but they are no longer the people 
that they pretend to be on camera and they are desperately desperately looking for an out or a way of kind of fronting up and being honest with their audience and saying look i no longer do like doing this so can i change um so i think that's a big thing that we'll have to reckon with um on youtube and then it kind of tied to the the tax thing i think that uh what we'll see in 2019 certainly the discussions that i have with uh politicians in europe is that france has kind of gone it alone in taxing these tech giants and the the question that you always ask with that is well does that mean that there will be displacement away from france in terms of employment of from these tech companies to other countries that you know tax less uh and the the general thinking seems to be that although they couldn't reach an agreement in europe across the 28 member states for a whole europe tax regime on big tech firms they are getting very close to it so uh, i think we will see this year and in the coming years kind of piecemeal uh country by country taxation regimes on these big tech firms but eventually it'll reach a tipping point where enough of them have kind of done pretty much the same thing that they say well actually let's all band together and and tax so it's not looking enormously positive for the big tech firms i don't think in the future well excellent predictions we'll stay tuned for those Another question that I like to ask everyone who comes on the show, and I realize that you're a journalist and not so much an entrepreneur or an operator, but I I ask this question to kind of get people thinking about what are the open opportunities, what's the white space in digital media today? So if you were starting a business in the online video world, what would you do? I would not set up on YouTube. I know that for certain. Uh, I think the the opportunity to actually make a foothold on that is has long gone it's too hard uh i would uh probably try and sort of if i was setting up a a company i would try and have as many fingers in as many pies as possible so i think that a lot of people are beginning to realize that you no longer need to be on one single platform whether that's you know e-commerce or an influencer or you know some other type of uh, startup i think that you need to kind of really diversify uh, your business so i think that would probably be the main thing that i would do is, is i you know i wouldn't get too kind of uh, swept up with the idea that i'm going to be i don't know an instagram led uh, subscription box business i think i would probably also make sure that i'm across loads of different social platforms because you never know with these things i mean the the annals of history are kind of littered with the names of almost and also ran companies that that we kind of projected as the next big thing and then they actually ended up going bust or getting disused so i think that would probably be uh what i would do in terms of if i'm setting up a company just make sure that i'm across kind of as many sectors and as many sort of Uh, social media platforms as possible because you never know what's going to happen chris where can people find out more about you and more about the work that you do uh so they can follow me on twitter Uh, i am at stokel which is s-t-o-k-e-l uh i kind of i have a website which is about six years old and not updated anymore so that is probably the best place to find out about me 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing some insight into your research, uh, some of the stuff that you cover for these various publications. And I would encourage people to stay tuned for your book, which comes out uh, May 2nd. Uh, I can't wait to read it, and I encourage everyone else to check it out. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. And again, great to have you on the show. Appreciate you sharing your perspective and insights with us. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. What are you working for? It's about more than what you do. It's about achieving something greater for yourself and for others. So ADP is enabling people to work better and embrace new challenges. To work anywhere and everywhere and helping everyone reach their full potential. At ADP, we're designing a better way to work so you can achieve what you're working for. HR, talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. Learn more at design.adp.com.